Ligonier Ministries partnered with Lifeway to do a theological survey. Part of the problem with surveys that you know is that a person is going to identify themselves one way or another, and that identification, however they identify themselves, may or may not be authentic. I appreciate that in this case, Lifeway qualified the term evangelical because they surveyed a lot of people. It's a theological survey, and they wanted to know particularly what evangelicals believed. But they qualified the term evangelical in this way. They said that an evangelical is someone who agrees with the following four statements. One, that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Two, it is very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, though the term evangelical has been abused in recent years, I think that we would all be able to easily relate to those four statements. One of the questions asked in this survey had to do with if church membership matters. Specifically, they asked whether people agree or disagree with the following statement. Quote, every Christian has the obligation to join a local church, end quote. Now, of those polled who did not identify as evangelicals, not surprisingly, 56% disagreed with that statement. Of the evangelicals, only 68% agreed with the statement, meaning that only about 7 out of 10 evangelical believers, people who would probably attend a church like ours, only seven out of ten of them would agree that they are obligated to be a part of a local church. Now, why is that? You believe the Bible is the highest authority. You believe it is important to engage the lost with the gospel. You believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice for sins. You believe that Jesus is exclusively the means of salvation. All of that we learn through the ministry of the church. We are built up in our faith in the context of the local church. We continue to obey the words of Jesus, the one another's that we are commanded in the context of the local church. Even if all you know is the great commission, the go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, how can you expect to plumb the depths of what Christ has commanded and faithfully obey what Christ has commanded apart from the local church? When we started out this series, I said that my prayer was for us to learn, to know, and to live out what the Bible teaches concerning the church. We just spent a number of weeks thinking about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We are beloved of God in Christ. We are chosen. We are those who will stand before him holy and blameless. We are the children of God adopted through Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed, the forgiven. We are saints, no longer worthless sinners and children of wrath. We are God's confidants, having been told the secret, the mystery that was previously hidden. We are God's people, his inheritance. He has set us apart in his Holy Spirit, sealed us with his Holy Spirit, marking us out as his people. We are joint heirs with Christ, having been given an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. 
We are those of all of God's creation who have been set apart for his glorious grace, to praise his glorious grace. But what difference does all of that make? I mean, what difference does all of that make to you in terms of the way you think about the significance of the church in your life? Well, in the next section, Paul says we need to take it a step further. Yes, this is who you are. All of what we just said, as we've been thinking about that in the first chapter of Ephesians. But do you realize what this means? Do you realize that this means that all of God's energy towards humanity for the purposes of redemption are poured out in the church? Do you truly realize how great the power of God is at work in the church? If you did, that would totally revolutionize the way you think about church. And so Paul prays for them. He prays because of their faith and he prays for their faith. That's a basic outline for this section. Verses 15 and 16, Paul prays because of their faith. In verses 17 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays for their faith. As he prays for their faith, he's going to ask that they would be strengthened so that they would come to know their hope in God, God's riches in them, and God's power at work in them. Lord, help them to get to know you better. Help them to know of your power so that they may know how great your work is in them. This is instructive for us in many ways as we consider this text. If you want to know what to pray for the church, what to pray for Catonsville Baptist Church, for us as a local assembly of believers, for each of us individually, and as we make up the whole, this is it, take notes. Pray that we would know the greatness of God's power towards us who believe in the church. Let's read the text together. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through the end, 15 through 23. Paul says there, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Father, once again, we come before you with grateful hearts, We pray that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, let's look at that first point. Again, Paul prays because of their faith. Again, verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. This is the reason why he prays for them. Simply put, because they have trusted in Christ. 
He lists two characteristics of a believer. They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they love the saints. Faith in Christ and love for the saints go together. You cannot have one without the other. They are two sides of the same coin. If you come to know Jesus, if you have been born again, then you will necessarily love those who are born of God. John says it this way, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Faith in Christ and love for the saints is enough for Paul to desire to pray for the believers at Ephesus. Every time I read one of Paul's letters, I feel that my prayer life is vastly inadequate. We struggle to find things to pray for people. Sometimes we struggle to think about who to pray for. But Paul consistently prayed for the churches. Wherever there were believers, genuine believers, Paul prayed for them. He spoke of his daily burden for all the churches in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, apart from other things, he talked about in this section all of the persecution and difficulty that he endured as an apostle. He says, apart from other things, those things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Think of the number of churches that Paul visited, the number of, of ministries that were started as a result of his ministry, as a result of his faithful gospel ministry. Paul said, I prayed for all of them. And I was daily thinking about all of them. What did he do with that burden? He prayed for them. Elsewhere, he says, to pray without ceasing. Others have likened prayer to breathing for the Christian. It should be as normal as breathing. Communicating with God, communicating with the very source of our life, it is just as if we were taking a breath. Prayer shouldn't be relegated to simply solving problems. God is not a genie in a bottle. You see this attitude prevalent in the church today, so much so that when people have difficulty, though they haven't prayed another day in their lives, when they're going through trial, they pray once, and the moment it appears that God doesn't hear or he isn't responding, what do they say? Where is God? Why isn't he answering my prayer? They've turned a deaf ear to the word of God. They don't listen to him. They don't talk to him in the normal course of life. And when he doesn't immediately answer their prayer, whenever they call, they reject him and they lose confidence. That shouldn't be the attitude of the church towards prayer. Prayer ought to be as normal as breathing for the Christian. This is why we have prayer as a normal part of our worship service. That's intentional. We have prayers of praise. We have prayers of confession in response to God's word. We have prayers of petition. We have a prayer of thanksgiving. That's to be instructive for you, to help you to think about how prayer ought to be a regular part of your day, a regular part of your life as a believer. How is your prayer life? Who do you pray for and what do you pray for them? Paul prayed for people who had faith in Christ. He prayed for those whom he knew had a genuine love for the saints. His whole focus and attention was not on the world, not on the myriad of needs that existed in the world. That can be overwhelming. His focus was on the people of God, those called by his name, those beloved in Christ, those adopted, redeemed, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul figured if that he was going to spend his spiritual energy doing something, he would use it for the purpose of the church. 
And we've all been at those prayer meetings where you have that one person who spends most of their time praying for their neighbor's cat who's sick or lost, right? <laughs> or for their aunt's friend, friend's neighbor who needs a kidney. Now, those requests aren't wrong. We should be praying for God to work in the lives of all people. We should especially be praying for the salvation of all people because that's the greatest need of those who are outside of Christ. We ought to be praying particularly for that. But when we come together, when we are in our prayer closets, the lion's share of the time that we spend in prayer ought to be for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus and who have a love for the saints. This is our family. This is the family of God. This is where, again, as we will see, God is directing all of his energies today in the church. So this is where we ought to be focusing our energies of prayer. Back to the text again. That's what Paul did. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Again, this is not a casual thought. He doesn't think of them on occasion. He regularly prays for this church with all of his responsibilities. Again, his daily concern for all the churches. He never fails to pray for the church at Ephesus. They have a genuine faith in Christ there. They have a love for the saints there. Paul says, I want to pray for them. I need to be praying for them. Again, as we move on, not only does he pray because of their faith, he also prays for their faith. Well, we see Paul here praying for the church at Ephesus, but what does he pray? What is his request for them? As deep and as detailed as this section, as much thought as Paul puts into this request, it's really one simple request. Verse 17, look at that with me. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays to God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same God referenced earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, the one who is over all. He prays to him, to the one who is the Father of glory. This is a reference back to the previous section, verses 3 through 14, and the repetition of that praise phrase to the praise of his glorious grace we've talked about glory before glory is weightiness its importance its significance paul says that there is no one more significant than god the god and father of our lord jesus christ he is the father of glory paul prays to him because he knows that if anyone can answer this request it's him if anyone would answer this request as his glory has been so abundantly poured out in the church, it would be him. God is passionate about his glory. He is in pursuit of his glory. He desires to see his glory lifted high, and he should be because he's worth it. He's poured out his glory in the church, so who else should we pray to for the needs of the church than him, the Father of glory? Amen. He prays to him, to the Father of glory, that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. What is he talking about? Big picture is that he prays that God would help them to get to know him better. Generally speaking, that's the essence of spiritual growth. It is getting to know God better. It is getting to know the things of God better. It is getting to know how God has already worked in our lives through our salvation better. When you think about the spiritual giants of the faith those who have gone on before us, those who walked in faithfulness to God, people in 
scripture who you would herald as heroes of the faith, like Moses, for example. Moses, who was called the friend of God, who was said to have spoken with God face to face. Do you remember what Moses prayed? In Exodus 34, he said, Lord, show me your glory. Now, Moses knew God. He spoke with God face to face. And yet, when he had the opportunity, he said, Lord, I need to see your glory. I need more of you. I need to know you better. That's my desire. David, in the Psalms, Psalm 119, prayed, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, reminds us to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to seek the things above. That ought to be our constant pursuit. In Romans, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God, and not to be conformed to the world, but what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Peter says at the end of his letter in 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus said eternal life is to know God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. One author said this, it's not facts about God that are most important, but knowing him personally and intimately. One can know many facts about the leader of a nation through news media, but that is quite different from personally knowing this leader as his or her family does. We ought to want to know God in that way because we are a part of his family, right? We are adopted in Christ. We talked about that in the last section. We are his children, so we ought to want to know our father better. That should be our goal, our aim. This is why expository preaching is a must in our pulpit. We must unpack and expose the meaning of the text of Scripture verse by verse, line by line, sentence by sentence, book by book, so that the meaning, intent, purposes of God are made known to us so that we might know his mind better and know his will better. This is why we should be praying for our Sunday morning gatherings, not just so that we can be stirred up by a riveting song every Sunday morning, You guys aren't coming here to hear me sing. But so that our minds are engaged by the word of God, so that our heart affections are stirred by the will of God, that we might come to know the God of the word, that we might be changed, that our lives would be different, that we would be equipped to show his glory. You ought to be praying Monday through Saturday for Sunday service, praying that the word of God will go forth, praying for me as I study that I would be ready to preach to you the unadulterated word of God. And you pray for me, not because there's anything special in me, but because I'm not perfect. <laughs> the word of God is perfect, but I'm not. So I need prayer so that I can study his word well. Is that not what Paul prays? He prays that we would know God better. Again, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, he's not praying again for the Holy Spirit. He already indicated in the previous verses 
that the moment we heard and believed the word of truth, the gospel, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So he's not praying for the Spirit to come again. That wouldn't make sense. However, he is praying that God, through the Holy Spirit, would give us wisdom and revelation into the knowledge of him. We talked about the many different ministries of the Holy Spirit. This is one of them. In theology, we typically refer to this as the ministry of illumination. That is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in, among the people of God. He gives us understanding and insight into God's word. The Holy Spirit is the one who engaged the writers of the Old and New Testaments so that they would be used by God to communicate his word. Therefore, it is the Holy Spirit who assists the people of God as they come before his word so that they might plumb the depths of his word and get to know him better. He is asking for God to give us wisdom through the Spirit. Wisdom is the ability to discern what is right and wrong, the skill to handle information well, to apply it correctly. He's asking for God to give us revelation through the Spirit. That is the ability to uncover and to understand truth, that we might mine its depths. He confirms the significance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the next phrase. Look at verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Enlightened is in the passive voice, meaning it is something that is done to us. That word for enlightened means just that. It is to have the eyes of our hearts illuminated, to have light shined on them, to have them enabled, again, the eyes of our hearts, enabled to clearly see God's word, God's truth. We have the phrase shedding light on the subject. Paul is saying, God, would you shed light on the subject of your word so that the word would go and sink deep down into our hearts, that would go just beyond a head knowledge, but that it would impact the affections of the heart. That was a request. What is the result? He prays that they would be enlightened to what end? Well, he gives three results of that enlightening in verses 18 and 19. Again, he says that God would give them the spirit of revelation and a knowledge of him so that they might know, verses 18 and 19, the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious in inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. He expounds further on that last point through the end of the, the chapter. Three things he desires for them to know. The hope of our calling, the riches of the inheritance that God has in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Let's look at each of those. First, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Through the Holy Spirit's enlightening, Paul is praying that they would know the hope of his calling, the hope that is a result of his calling. God has called you, and because that is true, we have hope. Of course, the believer's hope is not wishful thinking, I hope that everything turns out okay for you. I hope that I get that promotion. Usually when speak, people speak of hope in common vernacular, that is what it is. It's wishful thinking. The believer's hope is always based on and rooted in the promise of God. And here Paul says that our hope is based on God's calling of us. He has called you. He has chosen you. And because he has called you, he has chosen you. Again, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, we have a rock solid hope a hope that will not disappoint. Paul is saying, my prayer is that you would truly know that hope, that you would know it and that it would encourage you and enliven your souls as you live life together as the people of God. 
You think about passages like Romans 8, 28 through 30, where Paul talks about those who are called, and those who are foreknown, and those who are called, and those who are predestined, and those who are ultimately glorified. All of those words that Paul uses to describe the people of God and the work that God has done in their lives, he says it's a done deal, essentially. We're resting in the promise that God has already made for us. We ought to pray this for one another. God, remind your people of the hope that they have in you. Particularly as we go through trial, difficulty, distress, we ought to have a word about hope on our lips. It's not just for the day of the funeral. The hope that we have, as we have often said, ought to motivate our living today. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Again, in John chapter 3, it's one of my favorite passages. John says, we will be like him. That's what we're looking forward to. And he says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, fixed on God, fixed on Christ, purifies himself. Again, 1 Peter Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has called you. If God has called you, then his grace will sustain you to the end. That is our hope. That is our motivation to endure. Second, that you may know not only the hope to which he has called you, but also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, a prayer that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to the people of God what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, meaning that God's inheritance is glorious and that the glorious inheritance is of great value. The glorious inheritance are the riches. These are the things that make one rich. This is the mother load of inheritances, in other words. You were left the house, you were left the IRA account, you were left the cars, all of it. It all belongs to you. It's a glorious inheritance. Well, what is the glorious inheritance? The text says that it is his glorious inheritance, meaning God's glorious inheritance. It is his glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, the saints are the glorious inheritance of God. They are a part of what makes him rich. The fact that God has chosen some from humanity, some of those who are fallen, worthy only of his judgment, God has chosen some. He has given them to his son. These his son has died for. These the Holy Spirit has sealed, and at the end, after the Son has brought all things into subjection, after the Son has made his enemies a footstool for his feet, he will turn all things again over to his Father. The saints of God are his glorious inheritance. Paul is saying, listen, God has called you. God sees you as his glorious inheritance. What have you to fear in life? What is it that he wouldn't do for you? I like this note from an author. He says that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them in Christ. As from the beginning, he chose them in Christ. As a consequence, then, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on them. He views them as his beloved son and estimates them accordingly. Do you get that? You feel, I feel, like a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner every day. 
But the reality is that God sees you the same way he sees his son. He sees you as beloved. He sees you as a part of his inheritance, as a part of a treasure that belongs to him. He prays that we would see the hope of the calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The first two things he mentions here are significant, but I think this third is most significant. And I think this is what he's building towards in this section. He wants for the church to know how immeasurably great his power is toward us. Paul loves using superlatives, the immeasurable greatness of his power. It's not just greatness, it's immeasurable greatness. We know what immeasurable means, right? It cannot be measured. The definition of the word in the original reads something like this, to attain a degree that it extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale of extent. It means to go beyond. It means to surpass, to outdo. To attain a degree that extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale. So you have a scale measuring how great something is. This thing goes beyond the furthest point. I mean, greatness is already a significant word, right? Greatness means the quality of an exceeding quality of exceeding a standard of excellence. So greatness is already something to talk about. The power of God has already exceeded a standard of excellence. Paul is saying here, not only has it exceeded a standard of excellence already, but it goes even further beyond that, immeasurably. I know I'm throwing a lot of definitions out here at you. But I think it's significant because Paul is making a point he says the, the immeasurable greatness of his power. The word for power is the word we get the term dynamite from. This is explosive power, in other words. It packs a punch. But again, this isn't the standard punch-packing power. That would be enough. But this is power that exceeds the standard of excellence. It's already greater than excellent power. But it's not just power that exceeds the standard of excellence. It's power that exceeds the standard of excellence, and it goes immeasurably beyond that. This is God's power. This is God flexing his muscles. When he flexes his muscle, this kind of raw power that we see is unspeakable. This is immeasurably great power. This power, which exceeds, again, the normal standards of excellence already and goes immeasurably beyond that, this power, which is in accord with the working of his might, the exercise of his might, this power is directed towards us who believe. It's directed towards the church. I said earlier that this is what Paul has been building towards in a section because you'll spend the next four verses expounding on this one truth. In fact, for the next whole chapter, chapter two, and also part of chapter three, he's going to be expounding on this truth. God has immeasurably great power, and that immeasurably great power is presently working in the church. Take a look at those four remaining verses in chapter one. This immeasurably great power is of a certain quality, verses, 19, er, no, verses 20 through 23. 
He says again, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is resurrection power, the, kind of, the qual- kind of quality of power that is at work in the church is resurrection power. Specifically, this is the same resurrection power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to seat him at his right hand. The power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in the church today. Consider that for a moment. What had to take place when Christ was raised from the dead? Death had to be thwarted. The body had to be raised to life again. The natural processes that God had put into place as a result of man's sin had to be completely overturned. This is a supernatural work. But God said this is what was going to happen all along. Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts 2, Peter applies that passage in Psalm 16 to the resurrection of Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I will not be shaken. This is Psalm 16. Therefore, my heart will be glad and my tongue rejoice. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Raising Christ from the dead was no ordinary action. It was a work of surpassingly great power. It was God's power at work to raise the Holy One, the anointed one, Jesus, from the dead. But the text says not only was Christ raised from the dead, he was also seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places, we saw that term earlier in our text. All of the blessings that we've been given in Christ, every spiritual blessing comes from the heavenly places and is given to us because we're in Christ. We who are in Christ gain the benefit of these spiritual blessings, which are of heavenly origin, because that's where Christ is presently seated. Jesus was given the place of honor, the place of glory at the right hand of his Father. That is what it means to sit at the right hand of the King. It is to be the second person in the kingdom. Jesus was raised to that position as it is his rightful position. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son. That he was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father was a declaration to all of God's creation that he is the beloved Son. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me after his resurrection. Let me just make clear that the resurrection is not a side note in theology. It is a central element of the Christian faith. 
It is a central element of the Christian faith, not just because our resurrection depends on it. Our resurrection does depend on it. But the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus means more than our resurrection. It is a declaration that God approves of him. It is a declaration that he is the son of God, that he is the one who was prophesied as the Holy One of God. It is a declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. If the physical resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, if he didn't die and rise again from the dead, we would have no declaration from God of his lordship, no declaration of God's approval of him. But he has been raised. And he has been raised to the right hand of his father. We alluded to this truth earlier in Ephesians when we started talking about the mystery that Paul referred to in chapter 1, verse 9. The mystery has to do with the Father's desire for Jesus to have first place in everything. For Jesus to be given prominence. For him to have the title of the firstborn of all creation, according to Colossians 1. Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, has a position of authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now, what does he mean here when he says rule and authority and power? Most agree that these refer to angelic powers, spiritual powers at work in opposition to the people of God. Paul will discuss the reality of spiritual warfare in chapter 6. For now, he mentions these to help us to understand that the lordship of Jesus, his authority over all, means just that. He is lord over all. There's no one greater than him. There's no power greater than his. The believers may have been concerned about spiritual warfare with the climate of idolatry, polytheism, and occult practices that would have been prevalent in Ephesus. Paul is speaking directly to this in order to affirm the saints that, yes, Jesus is above every spiritual power, every so-called God. Every angelic being in power, Jesus is over all. The writer of Hebrews affirms this, that he is superior to the angels. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus Christ is over all. He's over all rule and power and authority and dominion. And he is above every name that is named, text says. Paul says Jesus is also over all human authority. We've talked about this. We've touched on this passage before. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow to him. Every king, every queen, every president. Every prime minister, every governor, every tribal leader, every human authority will bow the knee to Jesus. There's no human authority greater than him. Either they will bow willingly or their knees will be broken and they will be humbled before him. Jesus is over all. He's over all spiritual authority. He's over all human authority and he's over the church. He put all things back in our text, verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot be a part of the church except through Jesus. Again, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You must believe in the Lord Jesus if you desire to be saved from your sin and the penalty of the wrath that we all deserve. When you believe, you are made a part of God's family, adopted into God's family. You're made a part of the church. As a part of the church, you're made subject to Jesus and organically identified as his body. That's what Paul says in our text. He has been given as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Again, we're talking about identity here. The church is called the body of Christ to illustrate its relationship to him. He is the head. We are the body. He is the authority, the part that commands, directs, guides, leads. We are the body. We follow. We obey. We submit. Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he has authority over all, over all principalities and powers, over all spiritual powers, over all human authority, even over the church. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Some might ask the question, why then don't we see him exercising his authority over all? Why do we still see evil running rampant? Sometimes we ask that question as we feel the sting of injustice and the sin of others. I'll give you two brief answers, which don't, won't fully satisfy, but I think there are two substantial answers to this question. The first is that we do still see him exercising his authority over the cosmos today. The passage in Hebrews 1 says that he, Jesus, the Son of God, upholds all things by the word of his power. So he's exercising his authority every single day by upholding all of God's creation. All things hold together. The whole created order continues as it has been and doesn't completely come undone. The world continues to spin on its axis. The sun continues to burn just hot enough but not too much. Really, as awful as humanity could be, as much evil as it does, it could be worse. But it isn't. And we remain safe in God's creation. And again, the earth continues to spin. The world continues to turn. And we are not utterly destroyed, all because Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Second, we see his exercise of authority and that sinners are still coming to faith. The apparent delay is simply a matter of the patience of God. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3. Some ask, where is the promise of his coming? Peter says, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is being patient. Lord Jesus is withholding justice that is coming, judgment that is coming. He's withholding it so that those who ought to believe have the opportunity to believe. Now, again, we may know all of that. We may know how great Jesus is, but we shouldn't miss Paul's greater point in this passage. The point is that the power that was operative at work in raising Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in us. 
the power that was operative at work in raising Jesus, seating him at the right hand of the Father, above all other authority, above all other rule, above all other things in God's creation, that same power is at work in the church today. As we think about what difference this should make for us, consider just a couple of things here as we close. The same attention, focus, energy, work that God devoted to raising his son Jesus, he pours into the church. If the church is what God is pouring out his attention and energy on, what about you? What are you pouring out your attention and energy on in this life? To circle back to my initial observations, only seven of ten evangelicals believe that church membership ought to be an obligation. If God is so devoted to building his church and we are his people, what's more important for us to do? We've been chosen by him for this. We've been redeemed by him for this. We've been sealed in him for this. What's more important for us to do? What's more significant for us to spend our time in life pursuing our kingdom or Christ's kingdom? The church exists for the glory of God. God desires to be glorified in his church. How are you participating in building his church today? One more thing to consider. Same focus, attention, and energy, and work that God devoted to raising his son, he's pouring out in this church. No matter what happens in this life, God will build his church. No matter what persecution we may endure, no matter what heinous laws or lawless society may concoct for us to silence us, no matter how long this physical building remains occupied, so long as God is at work, the church of Jesus Christ will not fail. We can endure all things, knowing that the surpassing greatness of the power of God is at work in us. He will never leave us or forsake us. That's what we read from Isaiah 40, is it not? Those who wait on the Lord, his people, his church, the fullness of him who fills all in all, those who wait on him will renew their strength. They renew their strength because they're trusting in the strength that he gives. The surpassing greatness of his power. We're depending on that. We're waiting on that. We're trusting in that. If you get nothing else from this message... Understand that God is presently working his immeasurably great power to build his church, to be glorified in his church and in the head of his church, his son, Jesus Christ. Pray. Pray that we as his people would gain spiritual wisdom and understanding, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Pray that we would know the hope of his calling, the riches of God's inheritance in the church, and that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power that is presently at work in us. Pray that we would know these truths, that these truths would transform us, that we would pursue from the heart what God is pursuing, the building of his church, the body of Christ, that we would do that ultimately for his glory and our good. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us, Pray that as we look 
now to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would remind us of the greatness of your power, which is at work in us, the greatness of your power displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatness of your power as you continue to build your church. Father, help us to rest in that truth. Help us to rejoice in that truth together, even as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we remember the death of Christ until he comes. We pray this in his blessed name. Amen.